sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is What's Health Got to Do With It, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, what will the official end of the COVID-19 pandemic emergency mean for U.S. healthcare? It turns out, a lot. Then, the incredible story of the global race to identify the COVID-19 virus as told in an amazing new book by journalist David Kwan. But first, do you remember March 11th, 2020, when you found out about the COVID-19 pandemic emergency? The following is the actual declaration of the pandemic by the World Health Organization Director General. And we're deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Almost three years later, and after more than six and a half million deaths globally as of December 15, 2022, we arrived at this comment from President Biden on 60 Minutes. Is the pandemic over? The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. However, despite the bleak statistics and misery those numbers convey, there were some bright spots to COVID in the healthcare arena. At the start of the pandemic, rules for telehealth, hospitals, and other policies were temporarily scaled back, which has led to popular outcomes such as Medicaid expansion, an explosion of telemedicine, growth of hospital-at-home programs, growth of rural health, relaxation of provider licensure restrictions, and others. The questions that everyone is asking in Washington, D.C., and all state capitals across the U.S. is when will the pandemic emergency laws be declared over, and even more importantly, what happens then? Meanwhile, right at the end of 2022, Congress passed and President Biden signed the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, which totals $1.7 trillion in discretionary dollars, with lots of funding for various healthcare agencies and new healthcare laws. Given the high stakes, we are devoting our show to this topic. Joining us today to help us understand all of this is Natalie Davis. She is CEO and co-founder of the United States of Care, and she joins us from Washington, D.C. Natalie, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited to be here. Natalie, you are CEO of the United States of Care. But for our listeners who may not know what that is, can you tell us what is the United States of Care? Great. So we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization with a mission to ensure that everyone in this country has access to quality, affordable health care. And we do our work in a really unique way. We believe that our health care system needs to better serve all of us in this country. And so our agenda for reform, everything that we work on, is based off of years and years of going across the country and talking to people about what is working in our healthcare system and what is not, 
And where do they want to see change for their own health, for their family's health, and for their pocketbooks? So our, our agenda for reform, uh, United Solutions for Care, is based off of those conversations. Um, and we then use that to go and change laws in states, uh, in the U.S. Capitol, with the administration, um, and build new policy where our country doesn't have good policy. So really taking this approach of understanding what people want out of our healthcare system and using that to drive really hard to, to change the, the regulations and laws that govern our healthcare system. So as co-founder of this group, what led you to create this? So personally, I always felt like policy, whatever that is, or a healthcare <laughs> system, whatever that means, being in D.C., that always felt very um, kind of obscure to me. I didn't understand how it impacted my life or my family's life. Um, at the same time, when we were creating this organization, there was a, a real movement to repeal what was the Affordable Care Act, what is the Affordable Care Act. Um, and we saw an outpouring of people across the country realizing that this policy, this law, really made a difference in our everyday lives, in our neighbors' lives. And so we wanted to be the organization that put people at the center. We go out, we find out where people agree across party lines, across different demographics, and use that to paint a picture of where we can go as a healthcare system and then drive that change. We really saw um, a real need for this sort of organization that could really put people at the table of all of these discussions. And I'm so proud to have started this organization and now be the CEO as we enter into our five-year um, anniversary. So let's get into the issue of the pandemic. When the pandemic was declared as an official, we are in this state of emergency, what was the process by which laws changed or or relaxed or loosened that led us to where we are now uh, within the pandemic framework? Sure. And, and so I don't want to, you, you did this in your intro, but I don't want to skate over too quickly how this pandemic not only took too many lives, but it really highlighted the glaring inequities in our healthcare system and in our country. You know, we've lost over a million people, um, especially in historically underserved communities. 6.2 million people lost their job, leading to an economic recession. And think about this, 27 million workers and their dependents lost their health care coverage from their employer during a healthcare pandemic. Yeah. And so this really was in many ways, a huge moment, of course, we know for our country. And, and we've been under what is called a public health emergency since January of 2020, which means federal officials can modify certain requirements um, and some that are in the healthcare system. And it's just so important to appreciate the scope of how the pandemic forced us to look at the healthcare system. And there was a flurry of legislation and changes that that happened during this public health emergency. We really like to think of this as innovative policy. We don't usually think of policy as innovative, but during this time, it really was, we were, we were forced to change things very rapidly. Um, and and some of the, the changes that we saw, I like to think of them as buckets of how we access care, um, our coverage, how we get personalized care. So in access, we saw through this, during this public health emergency time, um, free vaccines, tests, and treatments for COVID. Right. We saw an increased use and flexibilities of virtual care. Um, it's changing licensing requirements. Right. So we have more healthcare workers available. Um, in coverage in our insurance, we saw enhanced subsidies, which are a tool to make insurance more affordable for people. We saw that people could retain their Medicaid coverage for longer um, and that pregnant women could get longer Medicaid coverage after they have the baby. Um, we saw, per, you know, investments in respite care for people who are caring for loved ones. We saw increased focus and help with our mental health care system, which is so necessary. And really, there's a lot more flexibility as we think about the healthcare system in the future, more flexibility around telehealth and virtual care, which really has, you know, changed the way we're thinking about um, accessing healthcare, especially for those who have lacked access before. So one of the laws that was passed was the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. What is that? What did that do? Yeah, so this this act really established many of the key provisions 
that were vital during the pandemic to make sure people had continuous health care coverage. So health care coverage, like we, we like to say, that's dependable when you need it. It is there and you can use it. Um, and, and the big one there is that states could not, generally could not disenroll Medicaid enrollees during the emergency period. Um, and in exchange, then the federal government gave states um, more temporary funds to cover these people. And so this led to a huge increase in the number of people that were enrolled and getting coverage through Medicaid, which many still are. Will you talk about the growth of Medicaid enrollment? Uh, but our listeners may need a little extra information in terms of understanding the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. So what is the difference between those insurances and why did Medicaid growth occur so much during the pandemic? Sure. So many people get their insurance through their employer. So this does not apply to, to these folks. But we have two programs in our country, Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare is a federal health insurance program for anyone age 65 or older. Some people under 65 with disabilities or conditions also can enroll. And then we have Medicaid, which is a joint federal and state program that gives health care coverage to people with limited or low income and resources. And so because this is a state a partnership of the state and the federal, but because it's state then, you see these programs look different in every single state. The saying is if you've seen one Medicaid program, you've only seen one Medicaid program. Um, and, and it really is the backbone of supporting so many people in our country and including a lot of kids. And, and your question was, so what happened during the public health emergency? And so... Um, this started in, in 2020, um, we're now in 2023, this is ongoing. We saw total Medicaid and enrollment grow to 90.6 million people as of August wow. 22. Yeah, an increase of 90, about 19 million people. And, and, and this happened because of a couple of reasons. One is there were already states that were expanding Medicaid, so they were getting more people enrolled. Um, through, you know, even like as the pandemic was starting. But we also saw economic conditions during the pandemic where people lost their job or they're maybe one of many jobs where they now became eligible because their income re reduced. Um, but then also really importantly, Medicaid um, agency, the state Medicaid agencies were told that they could not kick people off of Medicaid. We did not want to see even more people uninsured during a pandemic. And so um, we, during this, this period of not allowing to, to kick people off or re, it's called redetermination, are you still eligible? Basically, um, there were new people enrolled and others were not, and, and, and then you know, uh, others were not coming off. And so this really led to a huge growth in all 50 states um, uh, on the Medicaid program. So what happens when the pandemic is officially declared over in the U.S. with regards to all these laws that got enacted as a result of the emergency? Yeah, so very specifically on Medicaid then, because this is such an important moment where, um, you know, we're still in the public health emergency is still... Um, uh, declared. It can't go on forever. It should not go on forever because we, you know, the emergency ends at, at some point. Um, and there was a real concern that what is going to happen to all these people that got on Medicaid? Um, the state is, each state then is going to reach out back to people and say, are you still eligible? But this is a population that often is moving around. Um, their incomes fluctuate so much that, that it's hard to kind of produce accurate information to, to show what your annual income is. Um, and it's, as we all know, it's really hard to figure out insurance, let alone, you know, the process yes. to save, yes, to save we're still eligible. And so really importantly, actually, right at the end of 22, 2022, just a couple of weeks ago, Congress took action in their end of year funding bill um, on many issues, but on, specifically on this one where they said, okay, states, we know everybody has to redetermine. It was based on whenever this emergency was going to end. Nobody knew when that was. The Congress did something smart, actually. It, it did something smart in this moment and said, as of April 1st, Medicaid states should, will start to redetermine people if they see fit. Um, 
And so while we need to really make sure that people understand this process, that states are doing adequate outreach to people, it does bring some certainty to the process to know, okay, let's, we have this April 1st date. Um, and so through this, um, this measure that Congress just took, they gave the date, but they also said states, you have to make a good faith effort to find people if they've moved. You can't just kick people off. Um, and states will need to give monthly reports on how this process is going to the, to the federal government to, to show that they are really in good faith trying to keep people enrolled in coverage, which is so important. Lastly, something that's really important that happened in this end-of-year bill from Congress, is bipartisan bill, I'll add, is that um, there's now a uh, a permanency, uh, permanent provision that guarantees 12 months of continuous coverage for kids enrolled in Medicaid. Wow. And so before it was up to each state, some were a lot shorter. Some states have gone past the 12 months, but we have now of a country have said states, you at least have to keep a kid on for 12 months, which is really important. We can say it maybe isn't long enough, but but a kid, a family now knows a kid is on, they won't have to be redetermined um, until every 12 months. And so still so important that in this process, we're doing everything we can to find people and make sure that they can stay enrolled in coverage. If they aren't, what else can they, where else can they get coverage? Um, but it was, it's a big moment um, that, that the states have clarity now and we have some real protections for people. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, it's our end of the COVID health emergency show, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Natalie, what about laws related to who gets COVID, treatment for COVID, vaccines, and long COVID? What happened with regards to the COVID health care, if you will? So Congress crafted, a like I was talking about, a really critical bipartisan compromise that took steps to, to make sure that this innovative policy we did during the pandemic kind of moves us closer to a system that, that people want and can rely on. Um, one of the things we've talked about is telehealth. This was a really big priority to increase equitable access to care. And through this end of year package, um, we know that there's going to be a lot of um, provisions that are now extended for two years. We weren't sure what was going to happen when the public health emergency okay. ended. Congress said we're going to take this preemptive step. Two years now, we know that a lot of the telehealth flexibilities will stay in place. A really important one actually is audio-only telehealth. Mm. And so before, you had to have first an in-person visit, uh, and right. then you could you know, enter into a relationship virtually with a provider, but it had to be over video. And if you think about places that may not have strong broadband, that's both rural and urban. If you think about individuals who don't have... Uh, you know, so a, a way to access video or even just the privacy of maybe you're taking it from, you know, a car or something. This idea that you can do audio-only telehealth is really important for access. What happened to rural health uh, in this regard? Yeah, so this is going to be really important for rural health. It, it really um, helps make sure that where we have shortages of providers, uh, where people are going out and saying we need more and more mental health services, but I don't have a mental health service provider in my area, which, you know, in, in lots of rural areas, there's there aren't the providers that people need, um, may not be broadband uh, to be able to use this high, you know, Zoom or whatever the functionality is. And so this will make sure that people can have these, these changes in their homes, in their communities, this is places where you know, certain healthcare centers can do virtual care appointments. You know, allow people to do virtual care appointments to other providers. So it really um, allows for a lot more flexibility where people can can access literally the virtual care, but then also what that telehealth or virtual care experience looks like, which is again so important in our rural our rural areas. You know, Natalie, one of the other things that happened was the loosening of scope of practice restrictions for nurse practitioners or physician assistants or even pharmacists, which helped to alleviate the shortage of primary care providers. What happens now with that loosening? 
Yeah, so this is something tied again to the pandemic um, and I believe is still, um, you know, something that needs to be addressed when the public health emergency declaration ends. So let me give you some context. We've had 37 states that have predicted to have a shortage of primary care physicians by 2025 and a national shortage of more than 300,000 registered nurses by 2030, which has only been made worse by the pandemic. And of course, if you think about locations of care, we call them care deserts, if that's in rural areas or in certain urban areas. Um, and so during the pandemic to address this, there were a lot of states in DC substantially waived or relaxed licensing regulations. Um, and, and, you know, we're kind of redefining or, or, or waiving the defining of the scope of practice of these professionals, which really allowed us to make sure we had the care providers we needed, especially, you know, during to really combat COVID. Um, but there's still a lot now that states and Congress can do to ensure that we, we think about these flexibilities, which ones do we want to make permanent? Um, how do we also, though, ensure more, as we look long-term, how do we make sure more people go into these professions? There's less of a financial hurdle to go into these practices like loan forgiveness or, or other, you know, um, scholarship issues. Sure. Um, and also thinking through, again, this virtual care, if we have limited amount of providers um, and we think about their scope, how can they then start utilizing more and more of this telehealth and virtual care to, to fill these gaps? So, you know, I think both there was a, a loosening of um, of rate of, of requirements, which were so important, but also a real look at burnout that we saw with providers, with shortages, with um, you know, some real needs of the mental health care of our providers that um, have really been bared, you know, laid bare, but we still need to continue to address. So, Natalie, if you look at this from a global perspective, as you see all of these fixes that have been put in place, are there any glaring omissions that have not been covered by either the new Omnibus Funding Act or by the pandemic health emergency that really needs to get addressed? Yeah, so one of the ones that I, something that we are really looking at closely and talking about um, with officials is what people are calling the commercialization of our COVID response. So basically, um, our healthcare system, you know, is a commercial market. Usually, it's this is done by private sector entities that are overseen and regulated by um, public sector governments and state governments, federal government. Um, but when this emergency ends, um, the the response to the COVID will be moved into more of the, the private sector, like all of our healthcare is. Um, and so this will mean a really interest, interesting, is not the right word. This will be a really important time for our country to understand now that insurance companies um, are in charge of deciding what is and isn't covered. So I'm talking about vaccines, I'm right. talking about tests. Um, you know, and treatments, we really need a clear plan from the Biden administration on how this process is going to lay out. Um, how are they going to focus on the inequities that we see in our country? How are we going to make sure people can get what they need to be able to stay healthy and working? Um, and we, you know, really you know, are looking to the administration to encourage insurance companies to make our COVID-19 coverage clear for all of us to make sure it's easy for us to understand and navigate to make sure we understand how our coverage is structured, um, that out-of-pocket costs should not deter people from seeking treatment. Um, you know, this will look different than even in for all for those that have public, uh, you know, Medicaid coverage, for those sure. that have Medicare coverage, for employer coverage. And if you're uninsured, you know, you will have limited accesses, access to free vaccines and no coverage um, for the cost of treatments and tests. And so we were moving from a place where the government had a really huge role, the role in making sure that we were combating this, to being moved to the market. We need to make sure that we have information and protections in place that we can continue to, to move out of this uh, pandemic. 
Nellie, as you look to the future, what is the United States of Care doing to help deal with all of these issues uh, for the future? So we will continue to do our advocacy work across the country to make sure, especially that we continue to have affordable insurance for people. That's a lot of the work that we do in states. Um, We are working with Congress and the administration to make sure that there are continue to be in place all these ways that we can um, access healthcare through, you know, virtually with safeguards in place um, to make sure that mothers and children will have insurance, um, you know, after pregnancy and and during these really formative years, you know, we're making sure that mental health is really captured and a part of all the legislation that that we put our fingertips on as well as how we can make sure that there's a real focus on those that are that are often left behind from this healthcare system, those meaning people of color, people with low income, people in rural areas. Um, and and doing all we can to make sure that it's a a, a real smooth transition as we move out of this public health emergency and into what is our healthcare system. Mr. Postman. Our director, Isabella Da Silva, joins us now with questions for our experts from our listeners. Hi, Isabella. What do we have in that bag? Lindsay in Atlanta, Georgia. One of the best things I have appreciated during the pandemic is the free coverage of COVID tests vaccines, and even Paxlovid. Will the government continue to cover these COVID-related items even after the emergency? Natalie, help Lindsay out here. All right. So it's going to be kind of an unsatisfying answer because that is our health care system. It really is going to depend on someone's health insurance coverage. So as the question said, the government has been providing all of these, but we're now moving this into our healthcare system. Um, and so I'm going to give you a, a feel of the patchwork kind of system we have, um, depending on where you get your insurance. So people with Medicare, um, our older uh, adults in our country, will have access to COVID-19 tests and vaccines with no cost sharing, but may face out-of-pocket costs for treatments and testing-related office visits. If you have Medicaid through your state, um, you will have access to COVID-19 tests, vaccines, and treatments without cost sharing for at least a year after the public health emergency declaration ends, which it is not. Um, And nearly all Medicaid enrollees will have access to vaccines without cost sharing for more than a year after the after the pandemic. So what about people that have private health insurance through their job? Um, They will have access to COVID-19 vaccines, but may face cost sharing for tests and treatments. So we'll have to wait and see what benefits are decided on from insurers. Uh, And then the biggest concern are people without insurance, um, and they will have to continue to rely on existing safety net and public health uh, programs. Isabella, what else do we have? Jorge, an intern in New York City. Does what state you live in matter in determining what will happen to insurance coverage after the pandemic emergency ends? So many of my friends moved back and forth between parents' homes and homes related to work. Which state will count you as being enrolled in those circumstances? Natalie, this is a very interesting question because I know a lot of people that commute between different cities uh, that never used to occur before the pandemic. So how does it work now with these changes in laws? That's right. So again, not a, not a very uh, appealing answer to this one, <laughs> um, but it'll be so important um, now that we know the date, April 1st, um, where states will start this process to determine if people are still eligible. It'll be really important for people to um, look out for the, where they've gotten Medicaid coverage, make sure that they are still eligible in that state of residency, um, make sure they have all the information that each state will need, which, you know, the state they live in, which will look different in different states, um, be, to, to make sure that they understand their current circumstances, you know, being able to prove where they live, how much money they make. Um, it's also really important to remember, though, that people who aren't, in, who aren't eligible for Medicaid anymore, that they can shop for what's called exchange coverage. Um, So coverage we haven't really talked about, but another way through the Affordable Care Act, people can get on healthcare.gov or whatever their states is um, to um, see if they're eligible. And they will often 
be able to get uh, a reduction in the cost of that coverage um, based on how much income that they make. And so it would be really important find a navigator, find somebody who is a professional in this. They're here to help make sure that you stay in Medicaid if you're eligible or you can find something else. But it's going to be really important to, to make sure that you engage in this process when, when the state or the insurer reaches out to you. Isabella, what else do we have? Jennifer in Cincinnati. How should we advocate for making some of these COVID-related policies permanent? Should we contact our congressperson and ask for a COVID pandemic emergency to be continued or ask for some other solution? That's a fascinating question that Jennifer poses. Natalie, what do you think? So, you know, we the pandemic emergency declaration will end at some point. It really, it should, um, because we move it, we need this for emergency situations. Um, I think it's really important um, to understand um, what happened in this last bill that just came out or, you know, that was signed legislation that was signed um, to see what was made permanent. This idea, you know, the, the telehealth and, and Medicaid eligibility for children, et cetera. Um, and and to, to understand how that's going to impact your state and where you think a lot of the things that changed during the pandemic, you know, should continue if they weren't part of this big package. And so, um, you know, we, we want to make sure that, you know, the while the emergency can't last forever, that there are lots of different approaches that are maintained during this kind of innovative time that we're able to advocate for those. So we... It's, 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 an, it's a wonky in-depth document uh, at unitedstatesofcare.org where we lay out all the things that happened during the public health emergency, all the policies that changed, and really understanding how those have impacted your life and what you think should and shouldn't stay. Um, I think really important is another really important thing is to, to contact your members um, so that they are watching this move to commercializing, to moving this response, this the COVID-19 treatment, and set, et cetera, to the insurers um, to make sure that our elected representatives are also doing their part to make sure that this is a smooth transition. Um, and then finally, you know, making sure that you understand how your state is doing on we're determining people for Medicaid eligibility, if that impacts you, and if it does or it doesn't, your elected representative should be watching to make sure that the state's doing everything they can to keep people enrolled. And so that's another place where you can engage and, and call your, your members. Isabel, I think we have time for one more question. Hunter in Birmingham. How hard will it be to transition from Medicaid to another insurance should enrollment be cut? Natalie? So there are a lot of other coverage options available. Um, this especially came through after the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so it's really important to search for different coverage options, um, which can be challenging, but there are a lot of sites that states have stood up or healthcare.gov has stood up to understand your different options, um, what your discount or, or financial support might be to be able to enroll in those. Um, and, you know, make sure that you are reaching out to your, to a navigator or to others that are, it's their job to help make sure that people know if they can stay on Medicaid to move to another, um, to another insurance platform. And so, you know, there are states that are taking these proactive steps to say, okay, are you eligible for Medicaid? No, here, let's put you on this other, you know, let's tell you about this other insurance. Other states are not doing that. And so really hopeful that people can, you know, take that um, time to, to find somebody that can help them. Uh, but there are a lot of other options available. We're going to let that be our last word. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today. We have been talking to Natalie Davis. She is CEO of the United States of Care. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Would love to come back anytime something's happening in healthcare and, and help explain it. Up next, the incredible story of how the COVID-19 virus was identified. We'll be right back.
One study of COVID misinformation identified three waves of infodemics consisting of rumors, stigma, or conspiracy theories. The first wave was between January 21st and February 13th. The second wave was between February 14th and March 7th. And the third wave was between March 8th and March 31st, all in 2020. Rumors in particular were found to be dangerous as they can be masked as credible. Infection prevention and control strategies have potentially serious implications if prioritized over evidence-based guidelines. For example, a popular myth that consumption of highly concentrated alcohol could disinfect the body and kill the virus was circulating in different parts of the world. Following this misinformation, approximately 800 people died, whereas 5,876 have been hospitalized and 60 developed complete blindness after drinking methanol as a cure for coronavirus. Ivermectin is not useful for COVID-19. In an article recently published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, researchers concluded that taking 400 micrograms per kilogram of ivermectin for three days when compared to a placebo did not significantly improve the chances for a patient with mild to moderate symptoms of COVID-19 to avoid hospitalization. The use of ivermectin also showed no measurable decrease in the severity of COVID-19 symptoms or the length of time these patients experienced COVID-19 symptoms. I'm Dr. Joe Serban, and this is what's health got to do with it. As COVID continues to permeate our lives as part of a new normal, stories on how this virus emerged on the world stage are beginning to be told. One incredible entry into the genre is the new book, Breathless, the scientific race to defeat a deadly virus by author David Quammen. Based on exhaustive research and interviews, David weaves an incredible story that reads like an international spy novel, jumping the globe from Wuhan to Washington, Atlanta to Beijing. It's an incredible read that reminded me of the Bourne movies, except the COVID virus is Jason Bourne. The sad and upsetting part to me as I read it was just how much was known before COVID first made headlines. It was all so predictable. Nonetheless, this is an important story because to quote David himself as he writes in the book, COVID-19 won't be our last pandemic of the 21st century. It probably won't be our worst. With that point, he joins us from his home in Montana to talk about his book. David, welcome to our program. Thank you very much, Joe. It's good to be with you. And thanks for those kind words. I like the part about Jason Bourne in particular. (laughs) One of my favorite trilogies. (laughs) Me too. Mine too. David, congratulations on this amazing book. I understand it's your 17th book. Is that right? That's right. Yes. I've been at this a while. Yes. Yeah. Why did you choose to write this one? Well, my publisher asked me. I was very busy on another (laughs) book. Um, In the early months of 2020, I was in uh, Australia, actually in Tasmania, following Tasmanian devil biologists around in the bush, never mind why, but for a different book. And I came home on March 2nd of 2020, and my publisher said, look, we want a book on the pandemic that is clearly now happening, and we think you're the writer for it, so would you please give us a book on the pandemic? And, And then I had to think, I said yes, and then I had to think, How do I write a book about something? How do I write a unique book about something that a hundred other people were going to write books about? And how do I research it without being able to travel, which is usually a very important part of my operating procedure? 
So I thought about that for six months, and then I figured out the 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 approach and the structure of the book as you've read it. Make the virus itself the central character. Interview dozens and dozens. It ended up being ninety-five experts around the world by Zoom, and use their voices wow. to tell the story. Amazing, and and you have succeeded. Uh, when the pandemic was declared in March 2020, were you personally surprised or was it what took it so long given your previous work on viruses? Yeah, well, no, I was not surprised. I was not surprised when this thing turned into a pandemic, which was weeks and weeks before the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. Um, I had uh I had published an earlier book back in 2012 called Spillover about the whole phenomenon of dangerous pathogens that spill over from non-human animals into humans and cause disease outbreaks and sometimes epidemics or pandemics. And at the end of researching that book, uh, I had asked uh, scientists, well, is there a pandemic coming? And if so, what does it look like? And the consensus of what they told me was, yes, there's a pandemic coming. It'll be caused by a virus a new virus to humans, probably coming out of wild animals, probably uh, almost certainly an RNA virus as opposed to DNA genome virus, meaning higher rate of mutation, faster adaptation. And that means it could very likely be either a an influenza virus or a coronavirus. We had all that. I had heard all that. I said all that myself in my 2012 book. So when this began, I wasn't surprised and the scientists weren't surprised at anything except how unprepared we were right. at the level of national leadership and public health. It, it is incredible. You just brought up your your previous uh, fantastic book, Spillover, Animal Infections, and the Next Human Pandemic, written in 2012, I might add, uh, to, our, to all of our listeners. Do you consider this book just the continuation of that? Well, in a way, yes. It's so many people say, "Are you writing, you know, Spillover Two? You're writing a sequel?" As I was working <laughs> right. on this, no, it's a completely distinct book. It's a somewhat different kind of book, but it certainly is connected. They are they are companion pieces. One one is uh, uh, essentially um, a broad scale look at the whole phenomenon of these viruses that spill over into humans: Ebola virus, um, HIV causing the AIDS pandemic. Uh, Nipah virus in Malaysia, Hendra virus in Australia, all of these weird viruses that have spilled over into humans, the ecology and evolutionary biology of that phenomenon. And then along comes COVID-19. So suddenly I have, we all have, unfortunately, the instantiation of all the principles that I described in Spillover. Now we see those made real, made concrete, and made made painful and catastrophic to us in in real time. So this book is a description of how of, of how the principles became real and how the dire predictions were fulfilled. Now you note that alongside the human pandemic, how many animals were also impacted by COVID? And and one piece that struck me is that last year of the many white-tailed Deer sampled in Pennsylvania, forty-four percent tested positive. That sounded scary to me. In terms of what could happen next, is is that the the general it, sense of how we're supposed to take it? It it is scary. It's crazy. Uh, some of the some of the critics of the natural origins explanation for this, people who would prefer to believe that it leaked from a laboratory, make the argument that oh, this virus was too well adapted to humans from the beginning to be coincidence. But it was adapted to mammals from the beginning. It was infecting the occasional dog, the pet dog of a person infected, um, the, a cat, um, uh, tigers and lions in zoos who were exposed by zookeepers. Snow leopards were dying of this. Gorillas were coughing from this in zoos. And then it gets into mink on big industrial scale mink farms in the Netherlands and Denmark, and eventually also Utah, and it spreads through the mink. And some of those mink escape and seem to spread it to wild mink. And somehow it gets into white-tailed deer in the Midwest um, and, and parts of the East, as you mentioned, Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, uh, New York State, is, if I recall correctly. 
the white-tailed deer in those places are running high prevalences of COVID-19, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. How did that happen? How? What are the implications of that? It's crazy, and yet it's real. It's supported by solid scientific data. Oh, my goodness. You know, uh, one of the themes that really found me getting upset as I was reading your book was just how expected this scenario was. I, I personally remember being at an event in February of 2020, sitting next to an infectious disease doctor. And when I went to say, well, I guess I'll see you in a month. He said, uh, no, we won't see each other in a month. We probably will see each other in a year and a half. The conversation never left me, but he already knew that we were going to go into this state of pandemic when, when all the headlights were coming out through China and all. Uh, is this one yeah. of the main points that you wanted to make in this book? It just was incredibly predictable, this was. Yes, absolutely. This was no knowable and to some degree known that something very much like this would happen and how it would unfold. The first alarm bell that sounded loudly in my ears rang on January 13th of 2020 when I saw for the first time that uh, scientists in Wuhan were using the word coronavirus as applied to this new mysterious bug that was causing atypical, quote unquote, atypical pneumonia in, in dozens of cases in Wuhan. I hadn't been paying much attention to it. I had been, I'm part of a list serve of uh, an infectious disease alert service called ProMed, and they send out alerts, email alerts about infectious disease events all over the world. They started with this on December 30th, 2019, as I describe in the book, sort of hour by hour. I didn't pay attention until January 13th, when for the first time ProMed says, it looks like this is a coronavirus, a SARS-like coronavirus, similar, in other words, to the 2003 SARS. And when we knew that, we knew this could be really bad especially if this new virus, this coronavirus, had a capacity that the original SARS did not have, which was to be infectious in people who are asymptomatic, spreading before people feel bad. And in fact, there was evidence very early on that that was the case. And that told us, and that told your infectious disease friend, uh, among others, that this is going to be bad. This is going to be serious. This is going to change our lives. David, speaking of the origin of the virus, that's always been one of those also mm -hmm. things that I always have a question about. Do you think we'll ever know the precise origin of this virus, or is that question just just too late? It's too lost in politics, too lost, and everyone now shutting down. Well, you're right that we have lost valuable time, valuable opportunities, and valuable evidence to answer that question. We lost some very valuable evidence on January 1st, 2020, when authorities, Chinese authorities in the city of Wuhan ordered the closing and, um, and uh, disinfecting, quote unquote, of the, the market, the Wanan seafood wholesale market. Instead of going in there before any cleaning had been done, any sterilizing had been done to sample for the virus, to look for the virus, that was that was a fateful decision, a fateful mistake. Um, now, will we ever know the origin of the virus? Well, first of all, we have to keep looking. We have to keep looking in wild animals for the virus that matches this virus. Um, we have to consider even, you know, even the lab leak hypothesis, which is very, very, very unlikely, but we can't close our minds to it until we solve this problem. And it's possible that we never will. Finding the animal host of Marburg virus, for instance, took 41 years. Wow. Yeah. Finding the, 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 the reservoir host of SARS-1 took 14 years. So when people say, well, we haven't found the reservoir host in, in three years, so it must not be a natural spillover. That just reflects an ignorance of the history of this sort of disease. I appreciate you pointing that out. You know, you write about the fact that it's uh, it's when the next pandemic hits and not an if. Uh, do you see us repeating the same mistakes that we've made on this pandemic? Well, I'm afraid there's a likelihood we will, yes. And I ask that very question to the to the 95 expert sources who were 
my voices for this book. At the end of almost every interview, I asked these people, well, do you think we will have learned enough from this horrible catastrophe, COVID-19, to be better prepared next time? And about half of them said, uh, I'm sorry, but I think the answer is no. And the other half said, well, I hope so. Nobody was really confident, unfortunately, <laughs> right. that we right. would be better prepared. Um, but I am among those who hope we will be better prepared. And I should say that maybe it's not inevitable that there will be more pandemics, but it is inevitable that there will be more pandemic threats, more challenges, more dangerous, dangerous new viruses spilling over into humans, causing outbreaks. We have the opportunity, we have the expertise to stop those outbreaks, to contain them before they become pandemics. It's just a matter of whether we have the wisdom and the will to do what's necessary to contain them. I'm going to let that be our our, our last uh, uh, message there, David. I want to thank you so much. I could spend uh, an entire hour talking about everything in this book. Uh, congratulations again on such a terrific uh, work. Thank you very much, Joe. Pleasure to talk with you. It's been our pleasure. We've been talking to author David Quammen about his new book, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckett. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Da Silva and Josh Torres are our directors. Next week's program is a special show devoted to the aging of the brain. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jsurvin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.